I got too close to the speaker. Sorry, guys. Well, good morning. Well, good morning. Thank you. How are we doing today? Good, good. Well, I'm Sean. I am the associate pastor here at 116 Bible Church, and I am so happy to see all of your bright, smiling, shiny faces. Um, especially because I know you're not here for me. Praise God. You would be sorely disappointed. But you are here to worship and serve the one true God, the one living God, our Savior and King, Jesus Christ. Um, we are going to be, let me move this down a little bit, I'm, just, I'm a tad hot. Alright, is that a little better? I think that's a little better. Okay, we're going to be picking up in Romans chapter 14 today. If you've been with us for any length of time at all, uh, you probably have noticed we've been going through Romans. And we have been slowly making our way through the book. We are nearing the end. I mean, if you if you believe, we're, we're nearing the end. It just depends on how long it takes us to get through these last two and a half chapters. Um, all right. So Romans chapter 14. Um, Brother Ivan was kind enough to uh, fill in for us while Jeff and I were both out of town last week, unfortunately. Um, just some circumstances that came up that couldn't be avoided. But um, And he did a wonderful job preaching over uh, verse 1 and actually touching on verses 2 through 6. So what we're going to be doing this morning is reading the first half of, the, of chapter 14. And then from there, um, I'm going to basically just pick up in verse 7 and then we'll go to chapter 13, okay? Or sorry, verse 13, not chapter 13, then we'll be going backwards. So verse 13. All right. If you are able, I ask that you would please stand in the honor of the reading of God's Word. So, a little bit more. All right. Romans chapter 14, beginning in verse 1. And the Word of God says, Receive one who is weak in the faith, but not to disputes over doubtful things. For one believes he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats only vegetables. Let not him who eats despise him who does not eat. And let not him who does not eat judge him who eats, for God has received him. Who are you to judge another servant? To his own master he stands or falls. Indeed, he will be made to stand, for God is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day above another. Another esteems every day alike. Let each be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day observes it to the Lord, and he who does not observe the day to the Lord, he does not observe it. He who eats, eats to the Lord, for he gives God thanks. And he who does not eat to the Lord, he does not eat and gives God thanks. For none of us lives to himself, and no one dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. And to this end, 
Christ died and rose and lived again that he might be Lord of both the dead and the living. But why do you judge your brother? Or why do you show contempt for your brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. For it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So that each of us shall give account of himself to God. Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather resolve this, not to put a stumbling block or a cause to fall in our brother's way. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we are... God, we are so unbelievably and immeasurably blessed that you have given us not just the opportunity, but the privilege and the honor of reading that which you have given to your people through your servant Paul and that you have preserved through time and through space and had translated into, lang into a language we in 21st century America could understand. How great your love for us must be to not leave us abandoned without you, but to instead show us your nearness by providing us with your word. So this morning, God, as we have read your word and now we are going to dive into it to see what it is you have for your people. Lord, show us Jesus. We would see Jesus. Then we come to you to show us your will in your word, in your gospel. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. All right, friends, so let's do uh, what I always begin with, and that is a little review. Where have we been so far, and how did we get to where we are now? Well, for starters, this is a letter, or... As, some, as you King James folk may know it, an epistle. It's, an, it's a letter written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Rome. That's why it's called Romans. That's my favorite joke. If you, if you are here when I preach again through Romans, you're probably going to hear it again. So I hope you like it. But that's why it's called Romans. It's written from, by Paul to the church in Rome, a church he had little, if any, personal history with. Um, maybe, again, he, maybe he knew one or two people um, from his own missionary journeys, but it's likely he didn't know anybody at all. Um, and so, having or writing to a church that he does not know, um, he wants to make sure that they understand two things very, very clearly. One is, the, one is who Jesus Christ is, and the other is what he came to do. 
So, in a nutshell, he wants to make sure they have the true biblical gospel of Jesus Christ. And so that's really what he spends much of his time uh, focusing on. In the first half of the book, or of the letter, we see um, a focus on what we call orthodoxy, which is right thinking. How to think right about uh, God, Jesus, the Holy Spirit, his church, his word, his gospel, um, and how to uh, how to frame one's thinking around these things, and not just frame one's thinking around them, but how to build one's thinking upon them. And then he moves on to orthopraxy, or right doing, or right acting, and that he's basically showing going from this is how you think right about the gospel. This is what it means for your life. This is how radically it transforms the way you behave, act, and function in the world. And that really, in a nutshell, um, brings us to chapter 14. Um, if, you, uh, if you recall, in chapter 13, or if you weren't with us for chapter 13, I'll just give you a little synopsis. Uh, he start, or he goes, in chapter 13, he talks about what the gospel, how it should affect your relationship to the government, how it should affect your relationship to your neighbor. Um, and then... We dive into chapter 14, which is where we are today. Um, and again, Brother Ivan was kind enough to uh, really do the lion's share of verses 1 through 6. Um, so we're just going to summarize those a little bit. And he did a fantastic job talking about the relationship between the strong brother and the weak brother when it comes to um, issues that are, um, the biblical term is, Adiaphora, um, or things that uh, have no moral value or have no weight upon the actual gospel. Um, so things that aren't um, essential really to Christianity, but things in which there is freedom, um, but there can also be personal conviction. Um, and so two of the things he points out are uh, essentially eating meat, um, or really eating everything, um, versus uh, only eating vegetables. And to give you a little historical context of what that, what that could be referred to, um, remember, he's writing to the Church of Rome, which is a church that comes, which is composed of both Jews and Gentiles, Jewish people, and those who are non-Jewish or come from a Gentile background. And so when he's talking about eating meat, um, the idea here is probably has something to do with um, the Jewish person who in a Gentile context, living in Rome, not exactly a Jewish city, um, but a, uh, so a Jewish person living in Rome, living in a Gentile context, um, possibly avoiding meat altogether, even though meat was never, for, uh, wasn't forbidden um, since the times of Noah. I'm very sorry, this is not functioning well. Put it up below, see if that helps. So he's, he's talking about, um, Jew, uh, Jewish people who may be avoiding meat altogether because they don't want to eat meat that has possibly been um, hasn't been offered or sacrificed or slaughtered in a kosher way. Um, and he's also um, this also could apply to the Gentile believers who come from a very pagan background, who maybe in their own minds are thinking, "I'm not going to touch meat." Because I don't want to, I don't want to 
partake in anything that has to do with idol worship, even possibly meat that's been offered to idols. Because in this context, they would only, um, the pagan religions would, when they would sacrifice to idols, they would only burn up or sacrifice a portion of the meat. The rest would go to market to be sold. And so this idea being, I don't, I don't even want to, I don't even want a chance eating meat that's been offered to idols. And so he's really talk, like addressing two groups here who may be avoiding meat for very different reasons. But he's also saying, but in this there's actually liberty. In that you're not dealing with something that is inherently good or bad. You're dealing with something that is just is. And that's okay. And there's freedom to disagree in that. And he's also and he also goes on to talk about um, the um, those who consider one day more important than another. Um, and clearly what he's talking about here would be what? Holidays, holy days, um, festival days, feast days, um, e- even and including the, the very idea of a of a Sabbath, a weekly Sabbath. What he's talking about is is this notion that those who want to part, who feel convicted to participate in these days, in these holy days, versus those who think, you know, I, I shouldn't do that, I should honor all days as equal because God has created all days. And what does he say here? Does he say one one is right and one is wrong? Does he say one is good and one is bad? No, he says Whichever side of the fence you fall on, give glory to God. Give thanks to God. That's the point, is that we don't, um, whether we partake or whether we don't, whether we celebrate or whether we don't, we do so to the honor and the glory of God. That's the point. And so to kind of put that in a more 21st century uh, American context, um, those who... Celebrate Christmas versus those Christians who don't celebrate Christmas. Whichever side of the fence you fall on, Paul is saying, give thanks to God. He's saying, whether you whether you esteem the day or whether you treat it just like every other day, he's saying, give glory to God. And that's the point. And that's really... That's really the crux here of what Paul is talking about. He's talking about giving glory to God in all things, in all circumstances, regardless of what side you fall on. But don't let your own personal convictions, whether you are the stronger or the mature believer or the weaker or immature believer in this situation, your personal conviction should not disrupt the unity of God's people for something that the Bible or God through the Bible both permits or allows room for conviction. And that's okay. There is room in things that aren't gospel central for us to disagree. And that's okay. That's a good thing. right? That means that's just proof that not all of our journeys are going to look exactly the same. All of our paths are identical and that all of our paths are our Christ himself. He himself is the way. But not not the way in which we travel on that path is going to look exactly the same. 
So that brings us to verse 7 in chapter 14. See, I told you we were going to get here eventually. Verse 7 in chapter 14. For none of us lives to himself, and no one dies to himself. Now remember here, who is Paul talking to? He's talking to the church. He's talking, he's addressing a group of professed Christians, believers. And what is he saying to them? He says, whether you eat or not, whether you whether you celebrate holidays or not, regardless. The point is, we live to ourselves, we don't live to ourselves, and we don't die to ourselves. He's saying, you don't belong to you. And he clearly says that earlier in verse 4 when he talks about who are you to judge another servant? Meaning what? Your brother isn't He's not ultimately accountable to you. Your brother doesn't ultimately have to answer to you. Who does he answer to? He answers to the same master you answer to. And what he says here, and alluding back to that, we don't belong to ourselves. We don't ultimately answer to one another or even to our very own conscience. We ultimately answer to God. We don't live to ourselves. We don't die to ourselves. Instead, if we live, we live to the Lord. Which means what? As far as it is in your power, and as God has given you strength, you obey what he has explicitly expressed in Scripture. And what... What has not been explicitly expressed in Scripture, but has instead been planted in your conscience by God for one reason or another, depending upon your very own background, depending upon your very own history, depending upon your very own makeup that God himself put together and knows more intimately than you could possibly know yourself. You obey Scripture. You obey your conscience insofar as it aligns with Scripture, and you live to the Lord. Don't disobey conscience just for the sake of disobeying your own conscience. But instead, you seek to obey those, those burdens, those convictions that God has placed in your life, that God has placed upon your mind and your heart for the sake of obedience. And living to Christ. Friends, that's beautiful. It's beautiful to know that God hasn't just given us his word, but by his Holy Spirit, he pricks our conscience for things that may not be sinful in and of themselves, but may be harmful to me as an individual. And for those to whom it is not harmful, there's liberty. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So what is, what does he say here by dying to the Lord? He's saying that not only do we live for the sake of Christ, but we also die for the sake of Christ. Go to your grave as obedient as he gives you the power to be. Go to your grave as obedient 
as possible with his strength that abides within you, not your own. Go to your grave with a clear conscience and die to the Lord. Go to your grave for the sake of Jesus Christ. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. Now, there's something in here that is also extremely comforting and encouraging. You don't stop being the Lord's just because you stop breathing this air. You don't stop belonging to God just because you cease to exist in this plane of existence. Friends, that's not the day you stop belonging to God in a very real way. That's the day when your eyes are open to the fact that you belong to God in such a deep and abiding way and you realize that on such a level that you have never known it before. Why? Because when you stop existing here and you are absent with the body and therefore present with the Lord, you get to see Him face to face. You get to exist in his immediate and direct presence. And it is at that moment that we realize, that we understand, that we are reminded in a, in a most powerful way just how everlasting and eternal is the love of God. So whether you live or die, you are the Lord. So whether he chooses keep you here for another 50 years, whether he chooses to take you home this afternoon, you belong to the Lord. And because you belong to the Lord, you have been given not just the permission, but the power and the ability by his Holy Spirit to obey him and to do so by following his word and his conscience. Now don't hear what I'm not saying. I am not saying sinless perfectionism. I am not saying that on this side of heaven you are ever going to reach a point where you have ceased to sin. By no means. We are all from womb to tomb works in progress. Every single one of us. There is never a point at which we are not being sanctified if we belong to God. And that in itself is a grace because if we were to be transformed 100% all of a sudden, if God was to open your eyes to the true depth and weight of your sin, how crushing would that be? How immobilizing would that be? How fear-inducing would that be? to know exactly on a spiritual level just how sinful I really am. I'd be crippled. I would be completely immobilized because I have some idea of how sinful I am. But God in His grace instead of 
ripping off the blinders and blinding us with our sinfulness and his eternal and infinite holiness, he instead gradually shows us the sin in our life so that we are neither overwhelmed nor immobilized. And instead of, so that instead of us being a useless clump that is afraid to make a move, we are instead made holy slowly and slowly, just gradually more and more we are made holy as he is holy. There's so much grace in that. And that and that slow process of sanctification isn't just there's not just grace in the fact that it's not it's we're not being crippled by the weight of our own sin. There's also grace by the simple fact that this is preparation. This slow process of, of being made holy as he is holy is preparation so that when he does call us home, the culture shock isn't so intense that again we're crippled and immobilized and afraid to make a move. Because to be in his direct presence after this long process of sanctification. Instead of being too afraid to open our mouths, we will instead get to join with the angels in singing, Holy, Holy, Holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. And we don't just get to say it once. We won't just get to say it so much that, that it loses its meaning or its flavor or its awe. But just as with the angels who have been doing it since the time he created them, even to now, and will do it for eternity, and we get to join with them, each time we sing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord, we'll be just like the first time. Because with every breath, every, with every word, every syllable that will protrude from our mouths, God will be revealing something new about himself to us. That is your hope, Christian. That is how you can be given the strength by the Spirit of God to continue to press on in obedience to the Scriptures and to your conscience insofar as your conscience and Scripture agree. Because you know what you are being prepared for. You are being prepared like a bride for her groom to enter into the joy of your Master. With that hope, with that promise, with that faith. We cannot just give room for disagreement on things that aren't gospel central. We can even go so far as to embrace one another. And though we may disagree on some minor issue regarding food or drink, or holiday we can know that 
and we are worshiping the one true and living God together by the same Spirit. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and rose and lived again, that he might be Lord of both the dead and the living. To this end, Christ died and rose and lived again. He didn't just come to die. He came to live and die and live again. And it is by that, it is because of that, that he is Lord of both the dead and the living. Why is it given in that order in the dead and the living? Because of the order that Christ's actions are given to it previously. His death and his resurrection. To show, to show you, to show me, to show the church through time and geography that to cease to exist here is not to cease to exist. But to live to the Lord here, though you may die to the Lord one day, that death is not the end because you will continue to live to the Lord in his presence. To show us the promise of the eternality of the life that he gives his people. The everlasting nature of the life that we are provided through Jesus Christ is not just everlasting in an abstract sense. It's not everlasting in a vague metaphorical idea that you live on forever in somebody's <coughs> memories. But it's everlasting, everlasting life in the truest sense of the form and that though you die, yet shall you live. Though we die in Christ, we don't truly die. As it's been said by those much smarter than me way before me, that's simply graduation day. That's the day where you get to graduate from church militant here on this earth, at war with sin, to church triumphant. Those who get to enjoy the victory in all its fullness that was purchased for them by God. To that end, Christ died and rose again, that he might be Lord of both the dead and the living. But why do you judge your brother? Or why do you show contempt for your brother? These, these words are used intentionally. Why do you judge your brother? Talking about the weaker brother. Why do you hold your brother in contempt? Talking about the stronger brother. 
Why are you looking down your nose at your brother or even going so far as to condemn your brother? Condemn. Condemn in a spiritual sense with your words to suggest that one is not even of the faith. And this, this idea should be appalling to the people of God that we would go so far with our own personal convictions, our own personal our own personal convictions, our, our very own preferences to do this or not do that. To go so far and not just to to shake our head at our brother and to think he's silly or maybe just immature but to go so far as to condemn him and to accuse him of not even being a Christian because he doesn't line up with how we think a Christian should act even though the Bible does not add to the gospel in that sense and again, don't hear what I'm not saying. I am not saying, and Paul is not saying, and God is not saying, that we should not call out sin in our brother when we see it. Of course we should. Of course we should. It is unloving to do otherwise. To let your brother continue on in what is clearly sin. It's not to love your brother, it's to hate your brother. To give you a personal example, I don't drink alcohol. Personal conviction, I don't drink alcohol. Do I think it's necessarily wrong? No. Jesus very clearly drank wine. The apostles very clearly drank wine. Paul even told Timothy, when your stomach hurts... Drink a little wine. So, this idea that that alcohol is in, in inherently sinful is not one I hold to. But I don't drink it. But for me to go so far as to condemn you for drinking alcohol, in any measure, that would be adding to the gospel and that would be condemning you from a place of legalism, not a place of gospel-centered grace. And there is no reason brothers should do that to one another. There is no reason sisters should do that to one another. On the contrary, I have been given a personal conviction in a certain area for my own safety. You may not have that conviction. And it would be wrong for me. To assume. That you have to live like I live. In order to be considered a Christian. That would be. Not just arrogant. But presumptuous. That would be. That would be. A sin against the gospel. 
on par with the level that I'm accusing you of having. So why do you judge your brother? Or why do you show contempt for your brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Paul is saying here that in these areas where there is room for disagreement, don't stand in judgment or condemnation of your brother or sister in Christ because you need to understand that just like them, you are going to have to answer to God one day. You, just like them, will stand before the Bema seat, the judgment seat of Christ when he comes to judge the living and the dead. That's right. And whatever condemnation you cast upon your brother, that is going to be brought up. Whatever condemnation you had to cast upon your own brother for, for your own personal convictions or preferences in order to make yourself feel better, it's going to come up. They have freedom to do in these areas what they will. As long as they are obeying scripture and abiding by their, their God-given conscience, let them live. Just like you, as long as you are obeying scripture, as long as you are abiding by your God-given conscience, you have freedom to abstain. For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. Don't have such a small view of God's sovereignty in the salvation and sanctification of his people that you think he needs you to step in and fill in the gaps in the Bible. Because there aren't any. He hasn't left any. And he certainly doesn't need my counsel in order to correct another brother in an area that he doesn't address in an area that he doesn't condemn or in an area that he doesn't command. He doesn't need my help. And I'm going to venture to say he doesn't need your help either. Because he is the Lord. And one day Every knee is going to bow to him. Whether it bends willingly or he has to break it, every knee will bow. And every tongue will confess to God. And in the context of the church, that is when we answer for the way in which we reflected Christ to the outside world and to one another. Don't let condemnation of your brother be something that gets brought up. So then each of us shall give account of himself to God. Another, another iteration, another reiteration of what he said earlier about 
Your brother doesn't answer to you. You don't answer to your brother. You both answer to God, even and including in these areas. And each of us on that day will give an account to God of himself, not of your brother, not of your neighbor, not of even your very own family member. You're going to give an account of yourself to God. Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather resolve this. If you have a different translation, it more it make more clearly portray the play on words that Paul is using here when he says, but rather judge this. Don't judge your brother. Instead, judge this. Not to put a stumbling block or a cause to fall in our brother's way. So rather than looking down your nose at your brother or sister in Christ for something they do that you don't do or something they don't do that you do, in this non-salvific, non-gospel-centered arena of topics. Instead of looking down your nose and judging your brother or sister, instead, judge, determine, resolve for yourself to not be a stumbling block and to not place a hindrance in your brother's path. Meaning what? This is where Paul's going to transition. And verse 13, verse 13 is amazing because verse 13 is actually, it's a beautiful hinge between the first half of this chapter and the second half of this chapter. And the first half of this chapter is saying, therefore, don't judge your brother anymore. In these adiaphora, in these non-gospel, non-gospel, non-salvific areas, but instead resolve or judge this. Not to put a stumbling block or a cause to fall in our brother's way. That's the second half, and that's what he's that's what will be picked up on next week, I assume. Yeah. Next week? Next week. Okay. <laughs> um, verse uh, not to be or judge for yourself not to be a stumbling block. Not to put a stumbling block or a cause to fall in our brother's way. And as we're going to see next week. In the latter half of this chapter, Paul is saying, don't use your liberty as a weapon to hurt your brother. Now, there are, obviously, there's two sides of this coin. We are not to be, the church is not to be dictated by the conscience of the weaker brother. It's also not to be harmed by the flaunting of Christian liberty by the stronger And with that in mind, let us, rather than looking at our brother and seeing someone who needs to fall in line with our own personal preferences, we need to instead resolve within ourselves to instead of being a cause of stumbling, a cause of lifting up.
Because when we gather together, it's not to cause one another to stumble. It's not to hurt one another with our own conscience or our own Christian liberty. But it's instead to spur one another on to holiness. And to push one another to God, toward God, in holiness, in Christ-likeness, in love. So rather than judging your brother, judge for yourself to be an encouragement and a motivation, a motivator towards holiness for your brother. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we come before you, God, to thank you for blessing us with another Sunday, another week where we get to gather together as one people, your people called by your name. And Lord, where we get to open your word and we get to together read the words you have written for your people. Where we get to sing of the joys in Christ. Where we get to spur one another on towards holiness in your spirit. So Lord, thank you for this time. And Lord, may each and every one of us use our conscience and our liberty to motivate our brothers to holiness rather than to cause them to stumble and fall in the way. And may this be done by your power, with your spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And I forgot to mention, um, we're not done. We have communion.